I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 73. Uh, now, I'm going to... You may you may wonder, oh, why is this uh, a couple days late? It's because uh, we're recording this bef- uh, like a week and a half before it goes up, um, because I'm going to be out of town, and I will not be able to post it in such a way uh, as you can subscribe to it. But uh, you can listen to it from the site and, uh, and all of that. And you actually... If you're listening to this on a Tuesday, then you probably are listening to it from the site. So, well done. Uh, okay, so I will welcome in our... Well, maybe not welcome. He's here. Our uh, My co-host, Josh Long. Josh. I'm here whether you like it or not. That's, that yeah. is true. I'm talking to you, world. Yeah. It's weird. Every time like uh, Josh comes over to like to hang out or something, he starts with that. Yeah. I'm, I'm here like, whether you like it or not. You want me to leave? Too bad. I'm here now. Yeah. I'm drinking your drinks and eating your food. Yeah. It's really... Putting yeah. my feet up on your couch. And that's what I want to do for you listeners. I want to, I want you to feel like I'm here in your room with you, whether you're at work. and Maybe maybe I'm sitting next to you at work. Maybe I'm with you in the car as you're driving wherever it is you might be going. If you're just sitting at home. You know, that's what I want you to feel like. Now, listeners, are you, are you mildly annoyed... If so, then he's really captured the essence of being his friend or whatever this is. And uh, if you're mildly annoyed, don't worry. There's way more to come. I know. We're, we're two minutes into the two oh, minutes yeah. already. Okay. Mild. Um, so, okay. Real quick, I wanted to say thanks to everybody who voted for us uh, in the podcast awards. Voting has now closed. We will find And we, we won. We won. We sure did. You know why? Because the best listeners ever. Now, of course, actually hey. winning, we probably didn't. But, um, yeah, the uh, they will not announce it until, uh, I believe, January at the, I don't know, there's some kind of uh, newt, uh, like a new media expo or something in Las Vegas. I where they going to say newt something. Yeah, it's a Newt Gingrich-related. Oh. He's re- he's taken over podcasting, oddly. Really? But, uh, but yeah, and so... Um, so they're going to announce it at, like, this, this new media expo where they where that's where they're having like the podcast awards like uh, ceremony kind of thing and uh i'm not going to that um he he tries to encourage uh podcasters to go but at the same time it's like I- i'm probably even if i even if it was likely i was going to win i don't think i'd go i don't it's know in vegas like, yeah yeah vegas can be kind of intolerable yeah and like i don't drink and I don't uh, solicit uh, prostitutes. <laughs> that's, do you gamble? Well, that's the thing. Uh, <laughs> I don't, but I would really like to. And uh, you know, and if somebody wants to go gambling, then apparently Vegas is the is the place to go. That's the place to go. Yeah. Although here's the thing: is it just costs a whole bunch of money to go gambling. It sure does. Because like you can do all the you can do all the, if you want to do slot machines. Hey, you can do that all day long. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and uh, here's a tip that I that I learned by having to go to uh, every casino in Las Vegas with some people that I was I was there with. Um, you don't need to go to every casino in Las Vegas to do. Uh, to do slot machines they're the same in every casino don't yeah, worry well, and i would say that the casino itself is pretty much the same like the hotel built around it pretty much and that's going to be different that's the interesting stuff to see but a lot of people want to go and they just i feel like they, they think there's too much to see and so i this has happened both times i've been there i've been with people who just wanted to see a lot of stuff so we'd go into the casino we'd walk through the actual casino area which looks the same as every other casino and then we would leave and go somewhere else and by the end of the night i was like i just want to go home yeah just go to one of the amazing uh uh buffets they have there or go to to a nickel arcade and enjoy yourself (laughs) yeah there you go and because I, I went to Las Vegas when I was younger with my uh, family, and so I, I was not allowed to go into the casinos. So my brother and I would go to uh, the nickel arcades, which they were gambling and of themselves because you could very well lose your nickel because mm-hmm. uh, they did not maintain those games. But uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah, to go back, thanks to everybody uh, for voting. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh, but I appreciate everybody for for their support. Um and then before we move further into the episode, I did want to say that by this time, the fifth and final episode of a series I like to call, because that's the name of it, The Unemployed Mind. That's what you call it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is uh, Josh's uh, web series, and uh, the fifth, the, 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 ser- the season, season one, is pretty much finished now. Yes. And the finale is there, ready for you to watch. Absolutely. Go on and do it. Yeah, you can find that at uh, morethanonelesson.com. You can also go to uh, theunemployedmind.com. Look, it doesn't matter where you watch it. It'll register. It'll register that you watched it. Yeah. It'll be very exciting. And you will will enjoy yourself because you will laugh regardless of where you watch. If you're watching on an iPhone, you'll laugh. You watch it on a laptop, you'll you'll laugh. Watch it on your iPad. Oh, you know what? Actually, there's no... I have an iPad. No laughs. Oh, really? I don't laugh at a single thing on there. I don't well, know what it is. Hopefully the, the, the new mini iPad or whatever it is, that yeah. one. I think, the, I think you'll laugh on that one. Yeah. Now with more laughs. That's, that's how it's advertised. That's the, oh, yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so that's, that's available and, uh, and I've, uh, I've seen it and uh, well done. The whole series is, is uh, quite good and very funny. So uh, if you haven't seen any of it, go back, uh, start with, you don't really need to start with number one, but you don't have why to. Not? That is one thing I feel like people need to know. Cause sometimes when I've gone to look at web series that I don't know anything about, sometimes I feel like, well, I better start at the beginning. Um, this one, you can start at the beginning. It might give you maybe a, a, a slightly better understanding of what's going on with the characters, but yeah. it's, it's, it's very episodic and you can jump in any one and enjoy yourself. Yeah. The, the two protagonists, you get a pretty good sense of them in every episode. Yeah. Um, I think that first one is very much about them, and you get a really strong sense of... It's a good establishing episode, yeah. um, but it's not necessary, by which I mean, like, you know, I don't... Obviously, I'm not saying, like, ah, it's not necessary. Like, <laughs> d- just don't watch it. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But, uh, but yeah, you can jump in whenever you want, and you will enjoy it. But, uh, but my, uh, my recommendation is to go and, watch, uh, go and watch all of them. I think you'll enjoy them, yeah. uh, as I did. So, uh, okay. So let's uh, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. Um, we are going to be talking about Spike Jones, where the wild things are, and uh, sure enough, I <laughs> I keep wanting to do this thing where to save us all some time. I I want to put uh, you know I want to have like a, a plot summary that is short and sweet, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I did it last episode, but I, I forgot to do it this episode, so I apologize. Uh, Josh, did you find something? I prefer to write it myself. But Well, uh, I found that if we want to just go with a really easy one, we can use the IMDb synopsis, which is very short. Okay, but, well, and let's make it clear, this is the IMDb synopsis. We did not write it, so yeah. go right ahead, Josh. It says, an adaptation of Maurice Sendak's classic children's story, where Max, a disobedient little boy sent to bed without his supper, creates his own world, a forest inhabited by ferocious wild creatures that crown Max as their ruler. All right, there we go. That's pretty basic. And the film itself uh, does not... Uh, I mean, of course, it's, it's two hours, so uh, it kind of... Uh, expands on some of the relationships and such but the, mm-hmm. the story is basically that uh, there's not it's not an incredibly complex story from a from a plot standpoint emotionally it's pretty complex but, yeah uh, but yeah and as so, far as what happens in the story that's that's your main thing yeah and so um, so I wanted to it's and as I also want to try and do I want to try and kick it off with a Bible verse that might uh, discuss some of the theme that we're talking about but as it happens, the only uh, passage from the Bible that I wanted to discuss is like 13 verses long, and uh, and I don't necessarily want to uh, <laughs> to read all of that because then I then I would have to read it again later. So, um, so yeah, we'll uh, we'll hold off on that for the time being. But uh, I guess the basic theme that we'll be discussing from a Christian standpoint is this idea of you know our inherent. And I would say somewhat childlike or childish, you could say, uh, desire to to have people like un, like accept us on our terms, you know. Mm-hmm. And that that part's the 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 important part. Um, you know, I think that naturally drives us away from from God, uh, only to find that uh, you know we we can we can always come back. We are always welcome back and. Uh, he will welcome us with uh, with open arms, but we'll get we'll get more into that a little later. Um, so first things first, uh, let's talk about Spike Jones, where the wild things are, uh, and we will rather than rather than me start off, we'll start off with uh, with our good friend and you know tolerable acquaintance Josh Long. Josh, what did you think? Can I be both good friend and tolerable acquaintance? I feel like that's a... a well, you're a good friend to the listeners. Oh, okay. And you are a tolerable... Well, hang on. You're tolerated. <laughs> Those two don't necessarily go together. So are you saying you tolerate the intolerable? Kind of, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm pretty good. It sounds that way. I sure hope I win a podcast award. <laughs> How's it feel up there on the pedestal? <laughs> um... A little, a little drafty, a little lonely, but you know it's lonely at the top. It's going to be like that. So, um, but yeah, uh, what did uh, what did you think of this movie? And you can and you can talk about uh, your expectation going into it as well, because I, I know I certainly will. Mm-hmm. So, what do you got? I've I've I enjoyed it. Uh, I think I was worried that I wasn't going to like it going in, um, because there's a there's this. A lot of times when they try to adapt something that's already an existing property, there's a there's a way that they change it into something that it, it never was before. And sometimes that's okay in a movie, but a lot of times, if it's in the wrong filmmaker's hands, it just turns into something lousy. Like how um, The Grinch Stole Christmas, for example. Yeah. Um, Where they added stuff that actually... <laughs> that actually... 
contradicted what the original was about. You know, like they they the original was about how the Who's down in Whoville actually they don't care about all the external aspects of Christmas, whether the presents, the tree, or the decorations. Like and the Grinch thinks he can take that away from them, right? But in fact, they're still celebrating Christmas because that's not because it's about something more, right? Whereas, of course, in the remake. They the Who's them. are incredibly materialistic, and it takes the Grinch to... Like, it's just like, now you've gone totally against... Now you've basically just co-opted Dr. Seuss to say what you want to say, but I also don't think they even meant for that to be the case. But I'm sorry, I interrupted Yeah, no, I think, I think they were they were lost on uh, <laughs> what the themes and ideas of, of that were originally. But um, all that's to say... now. I, I was also a little bit worried because if anyone's seen or sorry, if anyone's read the book or remembered having it read to them as a child, mm-hmm. um, it, there's not a whole lot to it. Yeah. <laughs> there's obviously themes to it. And I think this is a movie that really um, effectively touches on those themes. But as far as plot wise, as we already mentioned, there isn't a whole lot that happens. Um and in the in the book, none of the uh, none of the wild things have like names or personalities or right. any of that stuff. So you're taking uh, your your subject matter has one character who does anything, um, who is a child, who uh, the basic idea of his story is he doesn't want to go to bed, so he goes to a world with monsters. Yeah. Um, so from that somebody was going to try to to cull a uh, a story um now i think one of the reasons it works out is because you have a you have an artist like spike jones working on it who's a i think he's a very talented director and he's talented with uh with subject matter that's a little bit off from the norm yeah. um he's been, he's been like that since the beginning since he was doing music videos they were all that way um but uh I think uh, I can adaptation is a similar mm-hmm. film that kind of is, is just a little bit a little bit skewed and um, so he he does well in that area and then you have uh, the 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 script I don't remember if it's the script itself or there, there was like a book that was sort of adapted from the original book by Dave Eggers who's mm-hmm. a American novelist mm-hmm. um, and he is he is also accredited with the screenplay as well. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and and he's a, he's a talented writer, and uh, he is also a little little bit off the mainstream, which I think is is what is good for this sort of thing. I think mm-hmm. if this had been mainstream, it would have turned into like maybe the Smurfs movie, or you know, one of the, one of these things where they take something that's the childish and basic, and then they try and make it like. Hey, what are kids like now? Let's put Justin Bieber in it. Let's yeah. put fart jokes in it. And it's like, <laughs> also, uh, apparently, mainstream children's film has the lowest opinion of children that you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Um. So that, but that's a sign up. So anyway, um, all those things together, I think, ended up making a, a good film, even though uh, I was a little bit worried about it. And you know, I thought it might be something that only tried to appeal to. Uh, so I guess my generation because mm-hmm. uh, well our generation but um, yours and mine not necessarily all the listeners right um, maybe the majority who knows 
I um, think the majority, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but if you are like us, then, then you then you listened or you had this book read to you maybe as a child or maybe you read it as a child or something like that. So you have a connection with it in that way. And I thought it would be possible that maybe they would only try and appeal to those people on that basis, just only appeal to it to those who already know it in sort of a retro, like, don't you remember this? Doesn't this make you feel good sort of way? And it doesn't. And I think it still does appeal to our generation and has a lot to to say that, that there's a lot that we'll get out of it. People who are, you know, in their mid twenties to mid thirties now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that stops it from being an effective kids movie either. I think kids might get less out of it, but I think, um, if we're talking about young children, the type that would be interested in the book, that that story of the book might be the most they get out of it anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's still in there. So I don't know. I, I felt like all around, I, I, uh, I thought it was a success. Yeah. Uh, you talking about how adults might actually get more out of the film than kids. I remember for a long time after I saw the movie and consider it to be a very effective movie and, and it affected me quite a bit. But I remember having almost a... I mentioned earlier, I, you know, I use the word philosophical. I throw maybe throw it around maybe a little too lightly, but I almost had a, a philosoph- philosophical problem with the film's existence, specifically existing <laughs> in the way in which it existed. Um, I know that all sounds very strange, but I'll explain. Um, I mean, that book is undeniably for kids. You know, there is a there is a magical quality to it that I think adults could appreciate. But no, ki- no adult. It's not Harry Potter where an adult is going to kick back with where the wild things are and uh, spend an hour reading. Right, you can yeah. read it almost by accident because it is. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's basically over in about three minutes. But, um, but the the book is 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 for children and it's and it's unabashed about being for children. And I, it's one of the things that I respect about the book. Um, and then when you hear that that noted writer Dave Eggers is 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 involved, and Spike Jones, who is a, a really great director, I'm sure he'd have, you know I was sure he would have a good vision of it. But then you see it, and you feel like, you know, this was very effective for me, an adult. But now it almost feels like the image that I had in my head was um, a little five year old reading Where the Wild Things Are and saying, "This is really good." And next to him is a grown man, about 40 years old. And he's like, huh, let me see that. And he snatches the book away from the kid, glances at him, and he's like, wow, it is good, and then walks away with it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it, it almost seemed like, it almost seemed a little selfish and self-indulgent on the part of we, the adults, to take this thing that is for children and make it, because it'd be one thing if the if the film was just as much for kids as it was for adults. There are plenty, you know. A lot, I think a lot of the Pixar movies are like that, and I'm I'm fine with that. I'm not opposed to something being for the whole family, but I do. To this day, I think it actually. I think adults will get more out of it than kids, and I feel like that. There's something kind of wrong with that. I feel like there's something. I don't know. It kind of cheats kids from like they have so few things that are genuinely good. Like you said, a lot of kids entertainment, whether it be TV or, or movies or books has a low opinion of children. Whereas I think, uh, where the wild things are has a, has a respect for kids and, and wants to engage their imagination. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. I, I really had a problem with the film existing in its 
current form even though i found it very effective it's like like almost the more effective i found it as an adult the more frustrated i was going to get with the fact that it was this effective because i was like it can't possibly be this effective for a kid Mm -hmm. um because there's a uh, an you know there's nostalgia and and thinking back to when you were a child but of course if you are a child you can't think back to anything um except you know last year it's like oh yeah i was quite a kid last year (laughs) but uh so that was my first i remember it's i got in a lot of arguments with people about this because they're just like oh but it's so effective it's like yeah but it's not i it's it's effective for us but in theory it was never supposed to be for us so now once again we've taken something and made it about us about ourselves well we are the most important right like it it seemed very (laughs) selfish to me you know it's just like there's already a lot of stuff for adults do we have to take stuff for ki- that are for kids as well and, and just take it for ourselves. So It's almost as if we only want to enjoy it on our terms. One could say that, yes. Look at you. And so um, <laughs> so that was, a, uh, that was a problem that I had for a while. But you know what? what's interesting is that uh, over the last few years, because the movie's about three years old now, uh, over that time, that objection has sort of faded a little bit. Um, and I just recognize, like, well, I'm not a kid. I'm an adult. And it affected me quite a bit emotionally. So... That's fine. I'm yeah. fine with that. Yeah. Um, and uh, but at the same time, like, um, there's a podcast I listen to called uh, Never Not Funny, and uh, Jimmy Pardo at the at the time his son was like I think th- two or three, and he took him to see Where the Wild Things Are, or I, I think he did. Yes, and uh, and the the three year old thought it was great. You know, really? there, there are moments that were a little scary, but that's okay. You know, yeah. there, are, there are moments in the companion film today that are frightening to three-year-olds. Yeah. And I think know. some of the best children's films are the ones that still have a, that have a little bit of an edge that are a little oh, bit yeah. scary. And maybe that's maybe that's because of again what our generation is and where we grew up. We had things like people always reference the Dark Crystal or the yeah. Black Cauldron or some of those ones that that we watch as kids that were a little bit that were not so safe. Or as I will always bring up. Uh, you, if you're a five-year-old and you watch Pinocchio and you see Lampwick turning into a donkey and just the sheer horror of that scene, like that yeah. will scar you. That's but that's it's some scary stuff. It really is. And so, um, so yeah, it's so at the same time, you know, if I had kids, I'd be fascinated to know like what they thought of it. I uh, I don't remember if my nephew saw it, but um, but yeah, so. I think I, I stopped thinking about like the audience that it was theoretically supposed to be for, and I just started thinking about like, well, what about what about me? And I don't mean that like in a selfish way, but just like, was it effective for me? Yeah. And it was uh, yeah. uh, incredibly so. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so yeah, I view the film as as uh, a surprise, like surprisingly successful. And I think a lot of that is due to Spike Jones. I was talking about this on yeah. Uh, Battleship Pretension a few weeks ago that um, uh, the writer Charlie Kaufman, who wrote Being John Malkovich, an adaptation, then he wrote and direct, directed Synecdoche, New York, and he and he wrote uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, to name a few. Um, I view him as a very intellectual writer who deals in ideas and concepts, and they can be very invigorating, but I, I find them to be kind of emotionally cold, or at least I would if somebody else directed those scripts i think spike jones is a very humanistic director he's a very emotional director a very Mm -hmm. instinctive director who is is really interesting getting to the core of like the core of our heart and the core of our souls whereas 
Charlie Kaufman, I think, is interested in getting into our minds. Yeah. And you put those two together and you get some really amazing movies. Yeah. Um, and so I was interested to see Spike Jones direct a movie that Kaufman was not involved in and that Spike mm-hmm. Jones was a co-writer on. Yeah. And it was based on based on something that was for kids and thus is almost purely instinct and emotion. Yeah. And I think he, you know, really hit it out of the park. It's yeah, a very, uh, and, and it's just, it's this very strange, there's a melancholy to the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, are, there's certainly an otherworldliness, but not in, not in a purely fantastical kind of way. Like the landscape that Max retreats to, um, it's not necessarily lush, you know, there's like, no, yeah, it's very, there's just a lot of dirt and trees that I don't think are alive anymore and boulders yeah. and all that. And I, th- I think, it, I think that's a more interesting picture picture and maybe uh, a more honest picture of imagination, especially mm-hmm. a child's imagination. Like I feel like other depictions of the, the world of imagination that I can, that I can think of is always like super colorful and mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, it's it's all happy things. Yeah, you know, it's butterflies and candy and all that stuff, and it looks it looks more like it looks like Willy Wonka, maybe. <laughs> yeah, or I mean, um, it looks like, frankly, it looks like uh, uh, Tim Burton's vision of the Chocolate Factory and Wonderland and yeah. that sort of thing. So, um, but this this one's more. Again, I think maybe gives a little bit more credit to children, and it's a little, it's raw, and it's mm-hmm. it still seems like a, it captures this idea of the wilderness, kind of, and the yeah, especially especially since it's a little boy too, like mm-hmm. it, it almost it almost feels like he, he has a connection with maybe the American West or something like that, you know, like yeah. it's like there's a cowboy aspect to some of these and locations, it's just, you know, and and I think in the. Uh, in the film, he uh, it seems to be located in the Midwest. There's snow and, mm-hmm. and all that, and so um, not to imply that the Midwest is is desolate. Like there are some places that are actually quite beautiful, but like you know, like I lived in like Denver, mm-hmm. and you know, it could be very pretty, but it also could be incredibly flat and just dirt and yeah. that sort of thing. And so I like the idea that because that that is uh, that is so somewhere where it diverges from the book because the book it's you know this luscious this lush uh rainforest type place Mm. um and so in the movie it does seem to be like you know the kid max like sees the world around him and so when he imagines something it's kind of an extension of that as opposed to he just pulls something and it's just totally nonsensical even though the wild things themselves are non are nonsensical they are also still like they're still structured like people yeah and And, there's elements of different known animals in all of them yeah there it's 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 an exaggeration of what the kid has already experienced which i think is what imagination often is yeah uh, especially at a young age and so um so yeah the visual and so that speaks to the visual quality of the film i think it's just uh it really does. It's fascinating that it it transports you to this other land, and you absolutely feel like it's this other land, and yet it seems also so familiar. Yeah, um, which is a very nostalgic uh, quality as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, one of the fascinating things. I mean, you mentioned that in the book, the the wild things um, they don't really have personalities. They basically just seem like 
I don't think they're ever given really anything to say. I think they, I think at one point they say like, you know, if you leave, we'll eat you up or, or something like that. I don't mm-hmm. totally recall, but they don't really have any lines and they don't really yeah. have personalities beyond like, Hey, these are just big chilled, big kids. Yeah. Uh, in the movie of, I mean, they are absolutely given personalities and the personalities are complex and, mm-hmm. and just very, uh, you know, scary at times and frustrating at times and yeah. sad, but happy and funny. Like, and one of the cool things about it is that they're, they're complex yet. They're still childlike. They're still something that could come out of the mind of a child. And they speak in all very simple terms. And, um, uh, you know, like, like children, they haven't yet learned to conceal their emotions and right. and uh, everything like that. So that, so they're they're upfront about everything. They're they're open about everything. So yeah. it's interesting that they deal with these very complex problems with each other, with themselves, like mm-hmm. self consciousness. Uh, you know, all all these kinds of different conflicts, and they just express those as a child might express them. Yeah, and because they because they exist as figments of Max's imagination, they would have to. But right. the fact that they're able to do that and still, uh, I don't know, still be emotionally affecting is, is quite an accomplishment. And it's, and for the, for the design of the, the wild things, they really went just straight with the book. I mean, yeah. it's to, to a degree that I was not expecting. Oh yeah. No. I mean, they basically are just like walking, not necessarily cartoons, but I mean, they just seem like big, scary stuffed animals. They, you know, it's not an instance where they tried to make it actually look like, like, oh, here's, here's an animal with like a bull's head. So they tried to make it look like an actual bull. No, they still make it look like this exaggerated bull's head and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So it's, uh, yeah, it's really, I mean, they do, <laughs> they do seem like the kind of things like, Okay, this is going to sound silly. When I was watching the movie, I was like, man, I bet it would be fun to hug those things. <laughs> but then at the same time, they can also turn around because they are basically children and, and are kind of not necessarily slaves to their emotions, but I guess, you know, just they're instinctive creatures, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you make them unhappy or if you make them angry, then suddenly these big things that look like they'd be so much fun to just bury yourself in suddenly they become quite intimidating and you don't know what's going to happen. And, and it's also uh, heavily implied that, uh, that Max shows up and they book, they give him a crown and he's the king. And then there's a scene where there's like all these, there's like a, just a big pile of bones with all these other crowns in it. And, uh, and Max is like, Hey, are those other Kings? And then uh, the, the character Carol Voiced by James Gandolfini, she's like, "Oh, that uh, those were like that when we got here." <laughs> and, just, and then later on, of course, I think they actually do state that they that you're the only king we haven't eaten, and so you know, it's a, it, there's a, a dangerous quality. There's a you know, a one could say wild quality to it all. Yeah. Um, and so I mentioned uh, the character of Carol. We'll get to Max in a moment, but uh, as far as the wild things themselves, uh, you know, by and large, I'm I'm kind of you and I saw Wreck-It Ralph yesterday and we were talking about the the frustrating practice of casting celebrities uh, in vo- as voices because mm-hmm. you spend the first couple minutes of, a, of maybe an important scene trying to figure out who it is that does who the voice. That and that can distract you, you know, as opposed to, you know, if you watch something, you know, uh, we're going, the companion film is uh, Disney's Alice in Wonderland, the 1951 version. Like, and if I said like, oh, Verna Felton was the Queen of Hearts. Ooh. Then it's just like, oh, 
Uh, I don't know who that is. But at the same time, there was also like Sterling Holloway as the Cheshire Cat, who would also go on to be Winnie the Pooh and Ka the Snake. But at the same time... Edwin. Edwin, yes. He would be in Mary Poppins, and he was in uh, Diary of Anne Frank, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So these they were notable actors, but they were also actors who first and foremost had interesting voices yeah. and, and lent that... that uh, to the to the part, and so I'm not opposed to the idea of casting celebrities, provided they do something. Like uh, an example is like Craig T. Nelson in The Incredibles. Mm. He does great. He does great work uh, as Mr. Incredible. Like when he has to be noble and heroic, but then also when he has to be quiet and vulnerable. Yeah. Um. So, I so I'm certainly not opposed to that. Uh, and when I looked at the the voice cast for Where the Wild Things Are, my first thought was like, Oh, huh. Okay. Hmm. Because you wound up with James Gandolfini, Paul Dano, Catherine O'Hara, Chris Cooper, and uh, I think Forrest Whitaker's in there somewhere, um, and I think you know one or two others. Certainly, you know none of the. I don't think any of them are big stars. I mean, I guess James Gandolfini's kind of a star in the sense that people know who he is because of The Sopranos, but uh, but nobody is like, oh, James Gandolfini does voice. I guess I'll go see it. Like yeah. that's a weird thing. So. Looking at the the cast, I was just like, oh, that's... I'm interested to see where they go with it. And I think every member of the cast uh, just does amazing work. James Gandolfini especially, because... Yeah. He... His is... He's pretty pretty much like the main wild thing of the story. And, you know, if you've seen The Sopranos, or really anything with James Gandolfini... Gandolfini... Gandolfini in it, pardon me... um, you know that I mean he's just a big presence, and even mm-hmm. though his voice is not necessarily commanding, it can be, and it can be yeah. very intimidating. And it's and what's more is like it's just adult, you know. Yeah, he just has a very adult voice, and so it's just like, so like is is this wild thing going to sound like Tony Soprano? Because that <laughs> it's going to use a lot of profanity. Yeah, that might take me out of it. But uh, but he manages. I don't know how he did it, but he manages to just like. He doesn't change his voice that much, but he changes the tone and becomes like a kid. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a I don't have it written down, but there's a a line where um you know, they're talking about all the wild things sleeping together in a real pile. Mm-hmm. You know, um and uh and that to them is a lot, uh, very exciting and a lot of fun. <laughs> uh but then later on like Max is is kind of frustrated by with the wild things and he doesn't want to sleep with them anymore. And and uh, Carol is the name of James Gandolfini's character, and he comes. He's like, and he's very upset with Max, and he says, like, it's like you said we were going to all be together and we were going to sleep together in a real pile. And it's like that's a that's first off, it's written wonderfully because that's such a kid thing to say, like a, yeah. just a real pile. Yeah, like, well, what's not a real pile? Like that's, <laughs> but it's just and the way he sells it, he just sells it in this very heartbreaking kind of thing, and he's he's being short-sighted and selfish but also you just feel bad for him you know he just feels like a like a disillusioned kid and it's just i, I like all the vocal performances and C- Catherine o'hara also d- is turns into pretty heartbreaking work but uh but james gandolfini had had some pretty heavy lifting to do and he managed to do it pretty yeah, well because he's the he has he's probably the second biggest character in the film yeah. if not he might have the most dialogue looking back i think he does is he? yeah um between it between him and Max, yeah, I think Max a lot. Max does say a lot of things, but I think uh, I don't think he's allowed any like major monologues or anything. Whereas yeah. Carol will just sometimes talk and talk because he's nervous. Yeah, um, 
And so, but I do want to get to Max, played by uh, a kid with the wonderful name of Max Records, which I feel like <laughs> it can't, can't be, be real. Right. It can't be real. Yeah. Um, but uh, but he does a great job. I, I I like him, and I think he's a little bit older in the movie than the character is in the book. I think in the book he's probably five or six. In the movie, yeah. I think he's about nine. Yeah, nine or probably. Ten, um, but he's still young enough um, that uh, that he doesn't totally know what he's feeling or why all the time. Yeah, and and he seems like a kid. Like that's yeah. uh, that's really important with child actors. And there's so many movies with terrible child actors where it's. Uh, you can almost tell that they've been groomed to be child actors mm-hmm. for years and years. And, you know, they like probably live out here in LA and their parents are getting them to every kind of audition, you know, every time pilot season comes around right. and they're, it's, it's like they're, they've become Hollywood people already. And kids don't know enough to know that regular people don't like that. And that, you know, for a performance to look good, you shouldn't seem like that. Uh, and they don't know that. So you get a lot You're of so these. so cynical, Josh, about know. the industry. Well, but it is kind of true, yes. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, it seems it comes off as false. Like, a lot of these kids, especially the, a lot of the Disney movies, uh, or, like, Disney Channel stuff, at least, yeah, yeah. Disney TV stuff, is all very, like, so... Uh, like, it, like it came in a kit where you just assembled everything and you, like, insert emotions here. Um, but he's, he comes off as a real kid. Yeah. Um, he's like crazy like a real kid would be. He's not thinking about himself. He's, he's not as self-conscious as uh, he's, he's not thinking about his performance, or at least he doesn't come off that way. Right. He's very naturalistic and very, we keep saying, and I, I keep saying instinctive and it's mm-hmm. just, he gives a very instinctive performance and, uh, you know, and that's, I, I do think that Spike Jones is a direct, he is very much an actor's director, even though, you know, people think of him as uh i'm not sure if i'd say visionary but a, a guy with a very strong personal vision in each of his films mm-hmm. but i mean if you if you look at like being john malkovich like the best performance of cameron diaz's career is in there probably the best performance of john john cusack's as well um i think so right could be no i have to it's think. a pretty good one there's 2012 there sure is <laughs> um it, i'd say it's between being John Malkovich, 2012, and say anything. That's it's, the one. Yeah. One of those three is the best one. I just can't decide. And there's Better Off Dead. Yeah, he's pretty him? good in that. He's is pretty that the good one with the skiing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a silly By movie. Sa- Savage Steve Holland, I believe. Hey. Um, so, uh, but yeah, and then of course, uh, I mean, Nicolas Cage is a, is a good actor in general. Um, but he... You know, gives a great performance and adaptation, as does Meryl Streep, and then Chris Cooper, who actually won an Oscar for uh, adaptation. Yeah. Um, and what, what's one of the things that's interesting, and this is, a, I don't mean to say that this is back to adaptation. Uh, I don't mean to say this as a, you know, in a way that makes it makes it sound like I'm not giving credit to Meryl Streep because she deserves it. But like, you know, Meryl Streep is such a big act, a big actress that like. You watch a performance, and even if, even if she loses herself in the performance, which I think she often does, you're still like, Meryl, this is Meryl Streep. Mm. Yeah, she should play a character. You know, she should play the Queen of England or, or the Prime Minister. Mm. Like, she should play people this big, you know. Uh, even if it's like Devil Wears Prada and she's like the head of a major magazine. Like, yeah, she should she should play a character who's incredibly feared. Yeah. Um, 
But in adaptation, she plays just like a real, just a regular person. And I actually kind of forget I'm watching Meryl Streep. Hmm. And, and it's because of, I think, this very naturalistic quality that Spike Jones just seems to bring out in his actors. And I think, uh, I think all the voice work in this, but, but Max Records, uh, very simple, but not simplistic performance, uh, is, is a testament to that. So, um, I'm trying to think if there's and if, and there's just a a beautiful uh, there's a beautiful score by Kurt, Carter Burwell which I find myself mm. listening to and always getting to the edge of tears and then realizing why am I listening to this <laughs> then there's a uh, uh, songs by was it Karen O Karen O of the yeah 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 and uh, and those and those are pretty good as well and mm-hmm. it's just so much of the film seems like it shouldn't work that it shouldn't. Yeah. That it shouldn't hang together. Like mm-hmm. Carter Burwell's music is very much like the music of his other films. There's a melancholy there, but and you know, there's nothing folky or anything about it. Whereas the music from uh, you know Karen O is, I'm not sure if I'd say it's folky, but it certainly is not orchestral or anything no. like that. So how could the two of these go together? And they do. Yeah, and and her at least with the yeah yeah yeahs, their music it tends to be kind of like. Uh, very very distortion heavy very mm-hmm. kind of frantic um uh, so that doesn't seem to go with with carter Burwell either yeah and just and somehow this movie just takes all these seemingly disparate elements and just mixes it together for this film that is very if not visually because i think it specifically is not visually beautiful and yet somehow one of the ways that i can describe it is just beautiful it's a beautiful film if only in its in the vibe it gives off. I know mm-hmm. that sounds strange. There's an intangible quality to the film that I can't yeah. quite can't quite uh, articulate. But uh, but yeah, if you haven't seen it, then I highly recommend it. I think it's it's wonderful. But uh, one of the interesting things about it is that you know Max and we're we're getting into some of the theme, and then we'll, I think we'll actually get into the companion film before we get into a, a, a discussion of the, the the theme proper. But um, so he goes. He feels like he's not listened to by his mom. His mom has uh, his played by Catherine Keener has like this new boyfriend, played by Mark Mark Ruffalo, um, and Max just doesn't approve. And then you know his big sister just doesn't listen to him. He just does not feel like he's a part of this world. Yeah, um, he doesn't feel cared for. Um, you know, he lashes out at his mom even when you really do get the impression like she's trying her best mm-hmm. you know she's a single mom yeah um and so he you know imagines going off to this wondrous place of his own creation and you know he's dressed up like a wolf i believe is what he calls it or mm-hmm. i think so he looks like a cat but i think he's supposed to be a wolf <laughs> and uh and so he's so the idea is he wants to be Wild. He wants to just kind of do what he wants, and and there you go. And so he goes to this world where everybody does what they want, and mm-hmm. and it's great. It's it's exactly what uh, it's very much an extension of himself, or at least an extension of his desires mm-hmm. um, to not necessarily be held accountable, and to just have every. And by the way, of course, he's crowned king of <laughs> the wild things immediately, and yeah. so he's being treasured uh by these people and really the world is very much about him Mm -hmm. uh but sure enough he finds that uh maybe having things being be be an extension of yourself is not the best idea 
um, because you are not, you soon realize that you're not perfect, and and so your own insecurities, you know, will be reflected in in these characters, mm-hmm. and they're much larger. And if they're insecure, well, they'll kill you and eat you, you know. <laughs> um, and so, like, and that, and that comes off as a, a kind of a way to look at your own problems and self-conscious right uh, ideas and, and all that stuff and how dangerous it can be for you and i think that's one of the yeah. things he realizes and that the film has to say yeah um and so he realizes you know that he can't he can't stay here he mm-hmm. cannot stay in a place where he is accountable pretty much only to himself because with these other things being an extension of him or being a, a reflection of who he is on the inside but just writ large on these you know, uh, giant beasts. Um, he realized like uh, this, these will quite literally consume me. And then I just won't be, I won't be me anymore. And I will lose who I am now. Of course he doesn't say that, but that's, that's clearly what it is. Mm -hmm. And you know, he, and really, I mean, what is being a child? If not just, you are the focus of your own universe and everyone else should be as well. There's a line in the film that I'll get to in a moment, but a lion. What? That's a wild thing. A line, Josh. Oh. Not a lion. I just said a lion. No, I said line. That makes more sense now. Josh, so help me. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, and so he, he does sort of realize, not merely that he should grow up, because it's not about that, because he's still a kid when he, when he goes home, and he still acts like a kid. It's not like he's gone through this harrowing experience, and now it's time to grow up. But the mm-hmm. film's not necessarily about the importance of growing up or the importance of staying a kid or anything like that. It's about this. There are certain childlike tendencies and one could say childish tendencies, uh, that Max and the wild things kind of embody. And by him going back home to his loving mother, uh, who does actually cherish him, even though he thought she didn't, um, he's acknowledging that maybe I'm not the most important thing. Maybe I'm part of something larger and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, and in that, in that, since I'll get to the uh, companion film, I would like to try to keep this episode somewhat short. And we are. Very exciting, Josh. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, <laughs> uh, I love when you mirror my enthusiasm. So, um, so yeah, the companion film is Disney's Alice in Wonderland, directed by a number of people and... Uh, the, like three like three people so i was gonna write it down and then i was like okay well who wrote it there are like 16 people credited with the story that's wow. how those early disney movies were yeah and so uh so i just chose not to write it down sorry everybody i i apologize if you're if uh animation enthusiasts are uh, insulted well maybe they can give us all the answers sure they can to life the universe and everything i mean 23 right or is it 40, 42. 42. So 23 was the number 23, which uh, <laughs> is the answer to the actual answer to everything. The actual answer to that movie. Yeah. Which is not very good. And the, well, okay, moving on. Um, so I, I was raised with Alice in Wonderland. Uh, I loved it, but also was a little creeped out by it because it is a creepy story filled with <laughs> creepy characters and you can disney it all you want. Those characters are creepy. Yeah. All right. Um, and what's fascinating is how willing. I mean, they sure. I mean, they do Disneyfy it quite a bit. And yet, the very fact that they chose to make this into a movie in 1951, 
Like, if you would ask me, if you ask me just instinctively, like, hey, when, uh, you know, when is, when did Disney's Alice in Wonderland come out? I'd probably say 60s, early 60s. When, hmm. maybe, maybe when film is trying to branch out a little bit. Mm-hmm. But no, like, they made it 51, and yes, they, they made it as family friendly as possible, but they still chose to adapt something really trippy and strange and yeah. intimidating and creepy. And good for them. I'm very yeah. excited. And there's something very, very... One of the reasons that I don't... Well, one of the many reasons I don't like the uh, the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland is that he steers into the creepy skid. Yeah. And it's just like, no, no, no. That's not how you do it. Mm. You have to play it straight. You have to play it like this is a... It's called Wonderland. Yeah. It's supposed to be this amazing thing that we that that we instinctively... Uh, I keep saying instinctively. I'm sorry. Uh, that we think is like, oh, this is a... This is amazing. I want to spend all my time here. And then over time, you realize the rotten core on the inside. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the beauty of, uh, of Wonderland. And, uh, and I feel like somehow putting the Disney gloss on it makes the animated 1951 Alice in Wonderland, like, I don't know if they were purposely trying to do this, if they were trying to have kind of this false face. And underneath, you know, a uh, a queen that beheads everybody, and you know this, yeah. uh, and the Cheshire Cat, and the and the insane uh, tea party, and all that, and that kind of thing. And so, like, I think they just thought, oh, we'll just give it the the you know the Disney treatment. But what they effectively did was adapt it exactly the way it should be, uh, where you have this false sense of security and familiarity, only to have the the floor drop out from under you. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I'm not really sure what, uh, what more to say about it, except that I think the, the music is really wonderful and I think the voice work is astounding. Um, you know, Catherine Beaumont, uh, plays Alice and she just plays her as just a very polite young girl, but also with a, a, a hint of a rebellious streak. Yeah. And, and because it's, because the, you know, source material is as old as it is, you don't, you never... You don't have a girl acting out so much as right. as we might think of it today. So um, she's about as rebellious, rebellious as it would get for that yeah. time. More than anything, it, the, her rebellion is kind of in her mind. This just this idea of like I'm dissatisfied with this world around me. Yeah. I don't like it, and so um, so she she talks early on about uh, you know you know if I if if I had my way or if you know if I made if I created the world or something like that, then, then everything would be nonsense. And she says that in response to like her, her older sister. Cause she has, Alice has to do her studies and her older sister is like, ugh, stop talking nonsense, you know, cause Alice is not interested in her studies. And then she's like, well, if I had, you know, if I had my way, everything would be nonsense, you know? And then she goes to a world where everything is nonsense <laughs> and discovers, I have no anchor. There is nothing. This isn't fun at all. Yeah. Not at all. And so, um, so yeah, Catherine Beaumont does just a a good job of this girl who's a you know a little snooty and definitely has a clear idea of what she wants, um, and then soon discovers oh this is not at all what I want. And there's yeah. moments you know where she's she feels alone and helpless and crying in the middle of the woods, and mm-hmm. you know there's a there's a vulnerability there as well. So the character does actually learn some things, but uh, but yeah, and Edwin as we mentioned uh, before does the voice of the Mad Hatter, and he's amazing. It's <laughs> 
The mar- I don't remember the name of the guy who does the March Hare, but he's good too. And it's just, especially because you do get the sense that Edwin is kind of, uh, kind of vamping a little bit here and there, like just, <laughs> you know, just when the when the white rabbit shows up and uh there's something wrong with his watch or the mad hatter he's got it he's got it worked out he's just gonna slap a lot of uh jam and butter into it and smash it with a hammer yeah (laughs) well what happens is uh and just like he goes here's mustard he's like mustard well don't let's be silly he's like jam well that's different and just starts puts it puts it in then the then the watch starts going crazy and then they yell mad watch as though this is a regular occurrence <laughs> oh mad watch yeah mad watch mad watch and then uh, the march hair is like only one way to stop a mad watch and that's to destroy it <laughs> and uh he says it as though it's uh, a really he has a subtle nuanced solution to stopping a mad watch and so it's it's very funny but it's also incredibly i mean you watch that it is a stressful movie yeah you know because it's constantly bad things happening to her the more you think yeah. about it like she gets shrunk yeah uh, she almost drowns inside that that bottle mm-hmm. um it's uh, lots of awful things happening yeah. and <laughs> i always th- this still stuck out sticks out to me now that it stuck out to me then the whole thing with the um uh the walrus and the carpenter oh yeah where the walrus, story within the story right yeah yeah but there's the part where the walrus eats all the uh oysters oysters yeah <laughs> and i remember as a child being like wait a minute what what happened yeah <laughs> weren't they weren't they friends and then he ate all his friends. Yeah. That's what uh, happens when you're curious. I guess so. So that that was a little bit upsetting. And, yeah. you know, I think a lot of things in this movie are a little bit that way. Yeah. And like, for example, the, uh, oh, shoot. Now I don't remember the name of it. Uh, can I've read the book, but um, the caucus race, mm-hmm. uh, which is um, the, the Dodo and various other people on the beach. They are wet because they've come in from the ocean. They're wet on the beach. So they set up a fire, uh, and then they just run around it so that between the fire and them moving, they'll get dry. But the water keeps coming in and getting them wet, but they just keep running because <laughs> they, don't, they don't realize that yeah, this is never going to stop. Yeah. And, and just the sheer, like, that's what happens with a world of nonsense, yeah. is you can't talk sense to people. <laughs> um, and then, and then, my favorite character, probably one of my—if I made a list of my uh, favorite literary characters of all time, the Cheshire Cat would probably be in the top five. Mm. Um, I love him. I think he's voiced wonderfully, obviously, Wonderland, wonderfully by uh, by uh, Sterling Holloway, who would go on to be—you know—you hear his voice, especially as Winnie the Pooh, and he just sounds like the most obviously the most mm. cuddly performer but then he went on to voice ka the python in the jungle book and then the cheshire cat he really explores within his voice within his seemingly uh harmless voice just this weird a weird malice but not not totally malice towards alice Hmm. um but just this kind of just this this mischievous thing you know where He just is constantly getting Alice in trouble yeah. to the point where she could die. He finds it all funny, but he's also willing to help her where he wants to. And that and like he's a character who you know, in the, I, I mentioned the scene where, where Alice is crying in the woods and then the Cheshire cat shows up and she finds comfort in him. <laughs> Why? She shouldn't. <laughs> he does he does provide her a way out and good for him, right into the uh right into the garden of the 
of the queen of the queen who's exactly. gonna kill her out of the frying pan and into the fire yeah and then of course the uh the cheshire cat shows up on the queen's butt on her head and basically ensures that alice gets uh the takes the blame for the, all the shenanigans of the cheshire cat so like of course so even that character is uh you you can't even get a handle on him like morally and so she re- and he is probably the closest thing sh- to an ally she has um and so like it's just such a it, it's like that idea of, you know, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And mm-hmm. what she wanted was a world of her own. And then she got it. And and it's going to kill her. It's yeah. going to cut her head off. Um, and so... Uh, and so I'll... I want to I wanna use this, you know, Max and Alice and what they want. Feeling like they... Feeling dissatisfied with their own world. Feeling like they... This world of rules and and limitations is uh stifling them and they just got to get away and, and mm-hmm. they should be the ones in charge really um and even though you know even though max doesn't specifically say if i were in charge he's essentially saying that um so i have a number of quotes here uh that will follow us through a uh, a thematic discussion here so uh this is a line from alice uh in Alice in Wonderland, if I had a world of my own, everything would be nonsense. Nothing would be what it is because everything would be what it isn't. And contrary-wise, what it is, it wouldn't be. And what it wouldn't be, it would. You see? <laughs> First off, I love Lewis Carroll. But, uh, and then they uh, have her go into a, a song, um, which I will not sing, but Aww. I will quote. Uh, Cats and rabbits would reside would reside in fancy little houses and be dressed in shoes and hats and trousers in a world of my own. All the flowers would have extra spe- very extra special powers. They would sit and talk to me for hours when I'm lonely in a world of my own. And of course, we do see what happens when the flowers talk. They're judgmental and terrible. <laughs> um, and so, like, I can't even remember how the words or how the tune to that song goes. So I guess that's something. I was thinking about it, and I was whistling it all day. And apparently, oh, really? my cat does not care for uh, certain songs that I whistle. <laughs> so, um, and then I did want to just uh, speaking of lyrics, there is a, uh, a lyrics by my fa- uh, a lyric by my favorite artist Tom Waits, uh, in which he just says, "I'm going out west where where they'll appreciate me." Um, the song is called "Going Out West," and it's great. So, um, but and and I I just quote that because it is that idea of. Where they'll appreciate me, you know? It's just... Yeah. Because even though Alice never says, like, I don't belong here because... I mean, obviously... Obviously, I don't belong here because uh, if I did, everyone would uh, think I was great and would yeah. stop making me do things I don't want to do. Yeah. You know? And so, uh, they want to be appreciated, but again, on their own terms. Right. And so, uh, I've got some more lines here. This is a fun little monologue by Carol as he's carrying, as he's walking Max through Max's new kingdom. Uh, I can show you your kingdom. This is, we're going back to where the wild things are. Where the wild things are. Thank you. Yes. Um, I can show you your kingdom. This is all yours. You're the owner of this world. Everything you see is yours. Oh, except that hole over there. That's Ira's. That tree's yours, but the hole is Ira's. Everything else is yours, except for that rock over there. That's not yours. That little rock next to the big rock. But everything else in the kingdom, except for that stick, that little stick right there, that's not yours. I want you to be king forever, Max. Now, uh... (laughs) While that does sound a lot like uh, the monologue at the end of the jerk, um, it <laughs> is this lamp. It's just it's. I like that it's so it's so 
all-encompassing, like everything is yours except except that. That seems like a very childish thing, but it's also basically him saying like it's it's all for you. Uh, your your uh, your lovely wife Megan was talking about uh, was watching the er- the Omen earlier today, and so it's all for you, Max. Is is what Carol is saying um, before uh, terrible things happen, and so um, and so. One thing that I find interesting is I talked about like you know Alice and Max they get involved in these in these worlds of their own creation where finally everyone's paying attention to them mm-hmm. either because she's new as an Alice in Wonderland or because they get the he gets the impression they've always been waiting for him to 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 give him a crown um, but these people are an extension these characters are an extension of him and her and so their own their own insecurities and their own selfishness will play into things. And so the character of Judith played by Catherine O'Hara does have a line, which I'll have you read Mm -hmm. um, in which uh, I think she has gotten mad at Max and then Max got mad right back at her. Mm -hmm. And she replies with, she says, if we're upset, your job is not to get upset back at us. Our job is to be upset. If I get mad and want to eat you, then you have to say, oh, okay, you can eat me. I love you. Whatever makes you happy, Judith, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, and it's funny, but it's also, I mean, you know, uh, I do have a C.S. Lewis quote here, but this is not the one I'll, I'll be talking about. But mm-hmm. uh, C.S. Lewis speaks a lot about just the inherent illogic of selfishness, mm-hmm. like real, true, pure selfishness. Yeah. Um, and it basically is just like, I want to eat you. Oh, well then. All right. Let me, whatever yeah. makes you happy, you know? And that's, <laughs> and that's in, in this, she, she says out loud something that probably Max thought, but mm-hmm. wouldn't have been able to say himself. Um, and maybe if he hadn't even heard it coming out of his own mouth, would have realized that it's ridiculous. But, um, that is that mind, that mindset of, of just, being accepted only on your own terms and not, um, like not listening to, to other people at all. That's, yeah. that's kind of the logical conclusion of that argument. Like the other yeah. person gets whatever they want, even if it means your destruction and your job is to smile and say, Oh, thank you. I love you. Yeah. And I do want to use this opportunity to talk about, uh, talk about society, man. Because man. anytime I say society, I almost society. always follow it with man on yeah. this show. But uh, and, and just culture in general. I mean, I'm not saying anything new, especially in Christian circles, when I talk about this being kind of a consumer culture, which where whatever you want is what's the most important thing. And it doesn't. And when I say consumer culture, I don't merely mean buying things. It could be relationships. It could be sex. It could be philosophy. Mm-hmm. Just literally whatever, you know, what? Well, now I've scrolled past the quote, but, you know. You can eat me. I love you. Whatever makes you happy. Like that seems to be the attitude. And mm-hmm. and if anybody else were to say that to you, say what they expect you to be to them, which mm-hmm. is literally just serve me, even if I want to eat you. Yeah. Um, any of us would say that's ridiculous. And yet we act that way. Yeah. Because I think that's human nature. Yeah. I think there's been much that's been said about uh, common, sorry, sorry, modern commercialism and marketing and things like that and I, I think a lot of blame's been placed on that for making people you know ha- having so much focus on whatever you want as much as you want yeah. and 
I think it's simplistic to blame that on advertising and marketing and uh, and just commercialism in general. I think that is a that is an an inborn human trait of selfishness, and I think some keen marketers have just kind of picked up on that. Well, and also like marketing only works because it appeals to this thing that's already it's something there. that you want. Yeah, yeah, if they're they're not going to try and sell you on like giving up everything that you own or something like that yeah <laughs> um i can only think of one person that really marketed that idea yeah, and they killed him yeah it didn't go well <laughs> um, i mean it did in the long run but uh but yeah and so um and i want to sort of address this idea of like you know max dealing with his mom and alice dealing with her sister and just the constraints of this life was very un- is very uncomfortable ultimately and they want to be comfortable like dealing with dealing with other people or to take this a little bit further dealing with god and his quote unquote rules and regulations you know um it's very uncomfortable like that's the, you know there's a reason that jesus says you know take up your cross like mm-hmm. that's not a that's not a light burden yeah you know um and so so we just strive for this idea and like we may we may not literally uh run away to a world of our own but mentally we do where we will probably surround people surround ourselves with people that do not challenge us Mm -hmm. only listen to things whether it be ideas or songs or whatever that tell us that we're right Mm -hmm. and basically just and i think frankly these days i think oh my god i can't believe i just am saying this here in the internet age, where anything is possible, you can you can insulate yourself in a way I don't think you ever could before. Yeah, and so, and we're searching ultimately for for comfort because you know the and I say that knowing full well what the next quote is going to be, but mm-hmm. I think that is the word for it. I mean, we might be able to we might call it independence, we might call it any number of things, but what it ultimately boils down to is we don't want to be hassled and we don't want anyone to tell us that we're wrong. Yeah. And, and so, if, uh, I'm, I'm interested that you use the uh, the word independence there because I feel like that to jump to another movie recommendation just really quickly. Independence on, Day. On the side, Independence Day is a great movie about getting what you want. And uh, no, um, the second film in the Three Colors trilogy, the Kieślowski trilogy, um, White. Mm-hmm. Is uh, for those who don't know anything about this trilogy, it's a trilogy of three films, each one. Um, with a color, and it's based on the French tricolor, the, the French flag, which each one of those colors represents an ideal, uh, liberty, uh, fraternity, equality. Um, wait, I might, for, that sounds, I might have mixed it up. I think you mixed it up, but I think those are the three, but I don't remember. Am I saying the wrong which ones? I forget which one corresponds to which now. I don't, I don't remember. That's but, all right, we're American. Yeah, that's right. But maybe it's blue now. I'm. It's running. This, this is not turning into a good recommendation. But anyway, watch uh, all three. All three of those. There's your recommendation. What I'll say is all three of those films show a way that 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 um, ideal can be seen in kind of a. It shows both sides of it, like both in a positive way and in a negative negative way. So anyway, that's that's just a good. That's another uh, movie that kind of explores the side of the other side of that so mm-hmm. but that's a side note we can we can talk about that later or never or something i feel like never 
That's fine. Yeah, we don't I'll think about with, it. We don't deal with foreign films on this show. No, as everybody knows. <laughs> anyway, so uh, <laughs> but we'll talk about Alice in Wonderland all day long. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so I, I, I've got this quote from from C.S. Lewis, and once again, I, I, I don't necessarily apologize for quoting C.S. Lewis a lot. I think he says uh, he's he's spoken about a lot of subjects um and so uh and i think he does it in a way that i that i really i really respond to um and this is a pretty uh kind of a common quote of his uh if you look for truth you may find comfort in the end if you look for comfort you will not get either comfort or truth only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin and in the end despair and i feel like that's i mean that's alice in wonderland that's where the wild things are and again the wild things in where the wild things are they're not bad no they mean well but because of the very nature of what they are which is extensions of his childish impulses impulse okay fine i didn't say instinct good for me good job um then they will uh, they like i said they will consume him like they may not want to they may not in the long run want to but in the moment when they're not thinking in the when they're not thinking about the big picture and how they feel towards him in general, they're just going to do it, you know. And that's because they're not dealing in truth; they're dealing in comfort. And in yeah. this particular moment, I will get extreme comfort out of devouring this <laughs> this kid. Yeah, because if you're not if you're not thinking about anything else around you, if you're only thinking about your own comfort, eventually that becomes destructive. Yeah. And that's that's what they are. And truth is uncomfortable. Well, yeah. I've heard it's inconvenient at times. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I remember uh, something uh, that a youth pastor of mine once said, which is truth, and I'm sure he's not the first one to say it, but like, truth is true no matter who believes it. Like, the very nature of truth is that it is, it is inflexible, hmm. and you have to adapt to it. And that, I think, and the process of doing that is maturity. It is the opposite of, of childishness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... So now we talk. Now we're now we're to this idea of truth, and so now let's talk about truth with a capital T. Um, this idea of you know a loving God, or just or a God that maybe we don't think is that loving. You know, He is holy, and one could say yes, He has r- the rules and regulations, but at the very least, there is this idea of like you know Jesus saying, "I am the way, the truth, and life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me." That is an inescapable notion i won't say at the moment it is the truth i believe it is and i think it's inescapable but it is a notion that you can't really negotiate with mm-hmm. and so you either have to accept it or move on yeah and and some people think that's really terrible and they mm-hmm. don't want to deal with that at all and so they rebel they say like and they and and they rebel against the very idea that there is truth that there is god that there is authority over them and that they will be, as you say, just independent. Like that's, and so, um, I, are you okay with reading the super long uh, passage here? You want me to read it? Sure. Sure, I can. Is that all right? Uh, yes. Okay. So this is Luke 15, uh, verses 11 through 24. It is the story of the uh, prodigal son. Yeah. And so uh, Josh is going to read that right now. Okay. <laughs> Uh, here we go. This, this again, is a little long, but bear with me. Um, so, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the, the estate. 
so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Wild living? Oh. Hey. Um, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as a citizen of that country, who, out to, sorry, out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to, f- to his fields to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. All right. Uh... You know what's and interesting? They all slept in a real pile. In a real pile. Thanks for listening, everyone. Um, yeah, it's uh, you know it's interesting. I picked I picked that, and uh, I didn't necessarily pick it. It just sort of I was like, oh well, I'm in in talking about the themes of this uh, of these movies. I'm kind of talking about the prodigal son here. So uh, so I basically just cut and pasted from the NIV translation, uh, failing to recognize that it said wild living. Huh. Hey, you know what? When it's Sometimes. cooking, it's cooking. <laughs> and uh, first off, that story always gets to me. Like, it's just, even just now, I'm aware of the story. I've been around a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but every time, it's just like this idea of like, it, it, it goes totally against what our assumptions are, that this kid is like, give me my inheritance now. I don't want to wait for you to die. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's just a, there's a real callousness in there and a very, and a lot of selfishness. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so he goes and does whatever he wants and soon finds there's a, this is not uh, going well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he comes back and he, one could say rightly assumes from a, from a just, from a justice standpoint that m- maybe I can just get a job on my dad's farm. You know, maybe I can do that. I, you know, and that'll be good enough for me. Um, you know, and in that same way, like, you know, Max and Alice, like, they want to go back home, but there's, you know, Alice is, like, longing for home. I don't think she necessarily despairs that, like, once she, uh, you know, once she gets there, that her sister's going to be like, nope, get out of here. You know, <laughs> I don't think that, but, like, I do think there is this idea of, like, you know, maybe you've changed maybe the place you've gone has changed you and that you didn't have a real appreciation Mm -hmm. for that place. And maybe they, and maybe when you're thinking back on your behavior, maybe I did not, maybe my lack of appreciation showed itself and I actually hurt some people. And, you know, one of the, uh, I was toying with the idea of, uh, going with, with, uh, wizard of Oz for the campaign, uh, companion film. Um, you know, where, you know, there's no place like home and, and that sort of thing. And so, mm. uh, so this idea of getting your own way 
to the point and then realizing like this is not at all what I wanted but surely I can't go back you know or if I do it's not going to be what it was mm-hmm. and I will not be as loved as I now realize I was yeah um, and then you know you go back only to discover that not only will it be like it was it will in fact be better mm-hmm. there is a there is a celebration going on because you're back yeah like that's i mean it, it's totally counterintuitive mm-hmm. and it it speaks directly to that idea of in in all three of these situations um both the two movies and the prodigal son the person who's leaving feels that they're not valued mm-hmm. feels that they're not seen as important or whatever that might be and mm-hmm. in all three situations when they return they have a more fuller understand they have a fuller understanding of how much they are they are valued yeah um maybe not a whole lot with alice but um she's still returning to like a a safe place and um but certainly the other two um there's a real sense of 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 love yeah there yeah and and it's and it goes back to this idea of like searching you know if you search for comfort then you'll just get you know soft soap and wishful thinking and you know, and that's to start with, and then you'll get despair in the end, you know, and that's what you get with both Max and Alice. But then if, but then they decide to go for truth instead, and they wind up in a much more comfortable place. Like mm-hmm. you might, you'll get truth and comfort thrown in. Yeah. Uh, you know, you'll get the father rushing out to meet you and actually you're like he goes in expecting now that he's now that he's facing the truth he knows that the truth is he doesn't deserve his father's love uh he deserves to be treated like one of the servants at best yeah and that's the that's the truth he's facing but he gets truth and immense comfort thrown in at the mm-hmm. very end part of the comfort is the comfort of knowing that his uh father loves him unconditionally yeah and so i guess that's ultimately what we're talking about just you know Human nature is such that, like, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do what I want. Uh, God can't tell me what to do and what, you know, what gives him the right aside from being God. But even then, like, you know, we, we badmouth God quite a bit. Um, and we, uh, by our very, na- by the nature of the situation, we can't understand him. Mm-hmm. But, like, when, and we go and do things on our own. And sure enough, I think we realize this can't sustain itself. And so... I'm sure there are some people who maybe they've done something that caused them to feel, you know, intensely guilty and they feel like they can't come back. And the coming back could just mean like, you know, maybe you're a, maybe you're a Christian and you're not, and you're still a Christian, but you've done something bad and you feel like you can't come to God in prayer. Hmm. You can, you know, um, God is always there to to welcome you back, no matter how you know to to bring everything back. Uh, no matter how wild it is, this thing that you might have done, and how you know what hedonistic hedonistic activity you might have engaged in, or how selfish you might have been, uh, God is always there to to welcome you home. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, can you think of anything else you'd like to add? Um, I mean, I think. We we can apply that in a larger sense to to God, um, and I think we can also apply it in a in a smaller sense to each other, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess is true of most most good rules for for uh, 
life or most of the um, most of the commandments or directions that we get from God. Um, but we can, in the same way that we can tend to say, I know what's best for myself, um, why can't just God love me unconditionally regardless of, or, well, he does love us un- unconditionally, but why can he not let me do what I want to do unconditionally because that's what makes me happy? Um, and I think we can have that same tendency in our in our relationships. We, mm-hmm. we can do that with friends who, <laughs> I, I think I've seen people do that with just people who don't like the same things that they like. It's like, well, I'm not hanging out with that guy anymore. Yeah. Doesn't like Star Wars? What a terrible person. Which, I mean, who wouldn't like Star Wars? But still, God says we should love everybody, even even the terrible people who don't like Star Wars. I'm not a huge fan of Star just, Wars. Just get off the show. <laughs> just get off the show. All right, I'll let um, you wrap up. All right, so that was it. Now, Tyler's, now that Tyler's gone, everybody, like, uh, weren't... The show's going to go in a different direction. <laughs> it's going to be very Star Wars heavy. Star uh, Wars and Ultimate Frisbee. Who likes it? <laughs> I guess we can keep um, the God stuff in there somewhere. <laughs> God loves Frisbee and Star Wars. Anyway, um, uh, but yeah, we can we can be that way. We certainly are that way with our parents. Max is with his parents, and uh, a lot of us never grow out of that, or, or at least it can remain for your entire life hard to let that go because your parents are different people than you are. They're always going to want different things than you do. Um, we can do that with our wives and girlfriends or if you're a woman, your boyfriend or, or husband. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that's probably the biggest one because that's where you have to have the most compromise with another, another person on the most yeah. regular basis. And um, since we are at heart, people who want to, to scream and fuss until we get the thing that makes us happy. Right. Um, that's something that you can't do in marriage if you want it to work. Um, so all, all that saying that while that's in, in a larger sense, we can understand how we can apply that to how we look at God mm-hmm. um, in a smaller sense. We sense we can apply that in how we interact with each other. And the two can go hand in hand. In fact, yeah, I think absolutely. they probably often do yeah. uh, if you, if you let them like this idea of like uh, something I was listening to a sermon about uh, sex and love uh, by Tim Keller, and I guess now that I mentioned it, I guess I'll post it. You got to, um, man. in which he talks about you know there's a lot of I want to make sure I, I want to make sure I get this right. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to misquote misquote him, but this idea of like you know there's a lot of things that we turn into like you know idols like we look to this thing to make us happy mm-hmm. um and what often happens is like it like you mentioned like relationships you know well i'm looking to my wife to make me happy but that means if she ever does anything that i don't like which as we see from the where the wild things are no 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 you're not supposed to no 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 <laughs> If I neglect to do this thing, you're just supposed to say, that's okay. It wasn't that important anyway. Like, you're always supposed <laughs> yeah. to say that. And, and always. And who's in a relationship who hasn't, hasn't experienced that thought where you think, where you, you can literally think to yourself, no, no, when I get upset, you don't, you don't right. get upset back at me. Absolutely. That's not how that works. And so, uh, and so that's the thing is like, if you're putting all your eggs in that basket, mm. you know, if you're, if you're depending on this person for your utter happiness and self-definition, if that person even slightly deviates from what you think you want, Mm. you will be crushed and you'll probably take it out on that person. Whereas if you find your identity and your happiness in Christ, then that will give you, I think the proper perspective so that, you know, when this inevitably, when this person lets you down 
and when you let this let down this person, neither of you are crushed. There might be like some, you know, a communication might need to happen and, mm-hmm. and or it definitely will. But like, who knows, maybe even an argument will will need to happen. But it won't be the end of everything. Yeah. You know, because both of you are working for the good of one another. And then together you're working uh, and looking towards God, you know, recognizing like, you know, I love you and I and this and I love you more than any other person on this earth. But if you went away tomorrow, whether through death or whatever, like I would be incredibly sad, but I would not be crushed. I would not be devastated. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not despair because I would still have this thing because, yeah. you know, I mean, that's, they say to go back to the childish thing, you know, that's, they say that's why like babies cry is because there's a sense of despair there because all they know is they're, they're hungry. They mm-hmm. don't know enough to know that they are, go- they're about to be taken care of. Yeah. You know, in that moment, it's just like, it's not a conscious thought, but it's just like, I'm hungry. I might never eat. I'm going to die. Well, I think I'm going to start crying now, you know? So yeah, it's, it, it does all, it does absolutely all work together. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I guess that's, uh, that's where we're, where we will end. Um, I'm not sure what the next episode is going to be about. We haven't discussed it because we're recording this one so far in advance. So, uh, you know, stay tuned. Uh, and in the meantime, you can uh, go to morethanonelesson.com, check out episode five of The Unemployed Mind. Um, you can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. You can email Josh, Josh, at morethanonelesson.com. You can join our Facebook group, where I basically just post everything that's that's new. Uh, there is still the uh, the newsletter, the monthly newsletter, which you can subscribe to on uh, morethanonelesson.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash morelessons. You can follow Josh. At the Josh Long. At the Josh Long. So uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. Thank you. And I'll get you next time. Bye.